This week, we're talking about buying and selling restoration businesses. Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the blog site, YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play podcast, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. This week, I've got a really great guest, JT Cry from Exit Strategies is joining us because he's a bit of a specialist in the world of buying and selling restoration businesses. Hey, JT, how are you doing today? I'm excellent. Thank you, David. Appreciate you having me. Oh, well, JT and I were lucky enough to meet online a couple of weeks ago. We had a little chat and when I found out that you have kind of carved out a little niche for yourself in this particular area, I wanted to have you on in particular because a few weeks ago, I did a video about subscription businesses where people sign up and pay regularly over the course of time. It was inspired by a viewer question where he asked about businesses where, you know, you have to kind of make a new client each time. And just before I hit record, we were talking about how a lot of people, if they have a fire or flood in their home, hopefully they don't ever have to come back for this service again. But having a certain position in the marketplace, a lot of these companies can perform pretty regularly, even though they're always having to chase a new client. Isn't that right? That is correct. Yeah, you're spot on. The, the, this industry is unique, David, in the fact that there's a homeowner, which the restoration contractor is trying to appease, but they're also trying to appease the, the insurance company uh, who they're working with. And so they're really trying to serve two masters and uh, it can be done uh, very effectively. So there's a lot of repeat work that comes from the insurance side or, the, or what we call the referral sources. Mm -hmm. But uh, hopefully as a homeowner or property owner, whether it be residential or commercial, that you only have to go through a disaster once, uh, hopefully not twice. Um, can you give us a little bit of a background about how you stumbled into this particular niche? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. Um, I was an entrepreneur through the 90s. I started and sold several of my own companies and realized that I really enjoyed the sales aspect of it, not so much the day-to-day -day grind that so many of us face. Mm -hmm. And so when I sold my last company, I wanted to step into the brokerage world and uh, started Exit Strategies in 2001 and really um, sold all kinds of companies for the first seven, eight years. And in 2000, Eight, spring of 2008, I was invited to an RIA conference. That's the Restoration Industry Association. Okay. I was invited there uh, by the association, and that led to speaking engagements and articles, and now uh, speak and write uh, throughout the industry for uh, multiple publications and the trade shows, and, and my name is fairly penetrated in the industry throughout uh, the U.S. And, and parts of Canada, I'll say. How did you get that invitation to the industry event? Had you successfully done a few transactions in the trade? I had. I had sold nine or 10 by that time. And one of my clients uh, had said, JT, no one has ever talked to us like you're talking to us. And there's a whole industry that needs to hear what you have to say. And you speak our language. And so he made the introduction for me. And um, uh, it was, uh, I think, a, a welcome introduction on both sides. Okay. And so you know, you started off as a generalist in business brokerage. And I think a lot of people who get into business brokerage in the beginning have to take everything they can get. What makes disaster restoration businesses so much different from, you know, sort of the, the average business out there? Well, that's a great question. It's, it's unique language. They're unique to finance. Um, I always say that uh, businesses that are asset light 
most service businesses, as most brokers uh, and advisors know, is if there's really light assets, you've got to tell a good story to make up for uh, all this goodwill, you know, this blue sky that you're trying to sell. And so part of it is understanding the industry. Um, part of it is explaining the industry to CPAs and lenders who don't fully understand it, because you said it a minute ago, it's, it's a lack of repeat clientele that tend to give people some heartburn. Once they understand the industry and understand where the work comes from, then that uh, and quickly uh, they can get over that hurdle. But also what makes it challenging, David, is uh, the TPAs who now are in full force throughout the industry, as you're aware. Um, because of them and how they operate, most of the sales need to be a stock sale. Uh, that has to do with EIN numbers and changing and whatnot, but very few are asset sales. So because of that variable, that also complicates it a little bit. But it's for the most part, it's the language that people use and the, the deal structure itself. So the, the TPNs, is that how you refer to them? TPAs, third-party administrators. Okay. So these people are kind of inserted between the insurance companies and the restoration people, and they manage sort of the work to try to make things more efficient for the insurance companies. Is that right? That is correct. And when you say these people, they're really an extension of the insurance companies. It's really no different than the auto body industry, yep. where they have these, this middle layer that will refer you to certain people who can best take care of you. And that protects their interest and hopefully satisfies the interest of the insured as well. And so the restoration companies, let's talk about the relationship they have with the TPAs. Is it, it's typically a contractual uh, engagement that they have. It is. It is. And it's a love-hate relationship. And everybody in in the industry knows that. Um, The pendulum 10 years ago, when the TPAs really were full force on the scene, that the the pendulum swung towards them because they they took a lion's share of the market. They essentially said, if you want our work, you've got to be on our program. And so instantly there were X, X number of approved contractors in every zip code or in every city. And if you weren't on that list, you weren't getting work period. And so everybody scrambled to be on the list. Well, as you might imagine with higher reporting requirements and details and, and, and a headache that goes with that, uh, then more and more contractors said, listen, for the fee that I'm paying, which can be anywhere from four to 8%, um, I'm not willing to play that game. I, I mm-hmm. want to go get direct work once again and not play uh, this game through the TPAs. And so now there's more and more people stepping off those programs and essentially saying, listen, um, I'm going to go direct. If I can't get it direct, I'm not going to take it. And so, so by direct, ahead. you mean they're, they're doing their own marketing to homeowners that may have suffered a loss and the homeowner in most insurance policies, they have the right to choose who they're going to work with. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, that is correct. That can be homeowners, homeowners associations. It can, it's any number of, of referral sources, including plumbers, fire departments, etc. It's almost, it reminds me of certain um, businesses or suppliers who might, for example, say they're not going to accept a certain credit card because they think that the merchant fee is too high. You know, these guys are saying, I'm not going to, I'm not, or, um, fleet management is like this too with uh with vehicle repair and maintenance and stuff they'll you know phh cards and things like this the the fee that the merchants or the service providers pay is quite a bit higher than what they would pay visa or mastercard for example and so they some people make the choice not to not to participate in, in that channel 
That is correct. It's a great analogy, David. It's there. I would say the vast majority of contractors that I work with, they'll be on a few programs, but they won't allow their sales to go above 30%, 40%, 50% of their work is from TPAs because they just feel like they lose control of their business. Hmm. And that being said, on the other end of the spectrum, there are contractors who will say I'm 98% program work and love it. And their justification is that they can't run a marketing department for less than that. Yeah. So it's, uh, there, there's just this chasm that's widening in the middle that, that these contractors either love TPAs or they don't. And it's just this separation that we're starting to see. So basically the TPAs could create a circumstance of customer concentration. If, if, right. if a contractor decided that they weren't going to fight for those, one, for those direct jobs and they were just going to rely on that as a, cha- a sales channel, um, they could end up with quite a risky business because a lot, of their, a lot of their revenue could be coming from one or two of these guys. Correct. And that's an issue when it comes to a point of sale. If some of these guys have a referral source, a, a TPA, that's 50 to 80% of their work, I've seen as high as 90%, mm-hmm. and something happens to that relationship, you know, the value of that business instantly suffers. I, I've seen this across the board in many different industries. Where I am here on the East Coast of Canada, we have a lot of uh, like lobster processing plants and people like this. And a lot of the wholesale trade for that stuff heads into Boston. And people who end up letting one wholesale broker buy too much of their product yeah. end up in a position where suddenly that person is dictating prices. That's right. Because... The, the buyer now knows if I don't buy what I've been buying, you're screwed. That's right. And, and margins start to shrink and everything. Have, have, you know, the, the pricing for the TPAs is based on a percentage of the work completed. Um, have, is there an impact on the overall pricing? Are the, is part of what the TPA is trying to do, trying to reduce the cost for the insurance company? Essentially, yes. They're, everybody uses Activate software for their pricing, but where they try to get you is on the overhead and profit. Is They, they will not cover certain portions of overhead and certain portions of, of profit. And so they eat into that piece of it, which is very frustrating for uh, the contractors because what the TPAs are essentially saying is do the work, but we don't want you to make any money. And if you make any money, let's make that just as tiny as possible because we're the ones paying for it. Yeah. And so now when someone decides that they want to leave the industry and they decide they want to sell their business and they reach out to, to you, um, obviously we want to have as much of a cash flow as possible to get, to get the best price on the business. What have you been seeing in the marketplace over the last little while as far as um, you know, pricing or what the buyers are willing to pay for? I think you had mentioned to me the other day that, that certain types of restoration businesses are obviously more sought after. Um, does it relate to these TPA relationships? It's a perfect question. And it's the, the answer that I'm going to provide is almost like one that an economist would provide. And it depends, yeah. you know, on one end of the spectrum and I'll, I'll, let me just paint a picture for you. I know it gets a chuckle, but um, on one end of the spectrum, you've got uh, restoration companies in the industry that do only mitigation. Okay. okay. That's a much higher profit margin and you're in and out on these jobs anywhere from three or four days to two or three weeks. And mitigation, mitigation meaning cleaning up all the dirty mess. That is correct. That's right. the, when you're first on site, you've got you've to prepare that structure for a reconstruction. So that, that mitigation piece is pretty high margin and uh, not uh, nearly as time consuming as construction. So there are companies who only do mitigation. 
On the other end of the spectrum, there's companies that only do reconstruction. And they'll let a mitigator come in and handle the first 10 days or two weeks, and then they'll come in and put it back together. And these guys look and smell essentially like contractors, but mm -hmm. insurance is still paying the bill. Well, full service companies are in the middle. They'll provide anything from mitigation to restoration, uh, specialty cleaning, hazmat cleaning, storage cleaning and contents. There's, a, there's an array of services in the middle, close to a dozen actually. So depending on where you are on that spectrum will, will help drive pricing. Uh, the second big issue is, is the size. You know, if you're a smaller company, you know, five, six, seven individuals, uh, mom and dad, maybe junior and junior's uh, wife working in the business and everyone's making a decent living, that's one set of pricing. And then you go up to companies that are 20, 30, 40 million in sales and they're throwing off, you know, four, five, six, seven million dollars a year between an EBIT or an adjusted EBITDA, which we're going to call adjusted earnings that's a totally different pricing structure. Yeah. But the, the top of the bell curve, whether you're a small company or a large company, these can go anywhere from 1.75 to two times the multiple all the way up to five and a half or six. So that's the justification behind a, a very, very general answer, which probably didn't satisfy what you're looking for, but it's incredibly varied. What kind of EBITDA would you have to see to get a, a, a over 5x multiple? You've got to be north of, in that range, you've got to be north of 2 million for the most part. Yeah. Okay. So, so well into the middle market yes. space. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, are they, are some companies that big because they're in big metro areas or are you seeing some of these companies that have grown to cover sort of regions and, and you know, larger Both. territories? Both. I have sold companies in uh, South Dakota and Wyoming where the communities of 35, 40,000 people, and there's only so much work that you can get. Mm -hmm. So that, that type of a buyer is going to be a manager, not someone who's going to buy it and attempt to triple it. Others will be in smaller communities, but have five or six locations. And others will be one location servicing a 150, 200 mile radius, and they can easily do 20, 30 million a year. Okay. So I've all over the board. I've seen uh, in this business, there's franchise brands and, and some of them, you know, seem to be <clears throat> penetrating and growing. What kind of an impact do the franchise brands have uh, as far as you're seeing for this industry and for resale? The franchise brands, last I counted, David, I think there were 26 or 27 different restoration franchises. It's, it's a pretty high number. It's incredible, actually. And what they've done is essentially keep slicing the pie smaller and smaller, which has been a little bit frustrating to those people with existing franchises when 20 years ago, you could buy several hundred thousand rooftops and for one flat fee. And then uh, 20 years later, they've got you know, five or six other franchisees right in your backyard. So it's been frustrating that way. So, so people have seen their territories cut. When oh, it absolutely. Comes time to renew. Okay. Absolutely, and not only that, the for for decades, many of these franchisors did not enforce any type of sales quotas per the territory. And I know a couple now that have said, "You will hit these types of numbers, or we're you're sort of going to get a stern talking to, and if you don't shape up, we're going to pull your territory." Yeah. And it's just not a very friendly way to to operate when you've got somebody looking over your shoulder that way. But the, there's not a real big impact on the independents because the buyers that call me, David, they're either looking for a franchise or they're looking for an independent. Very few people are on the fence. If they've come from the franchise world, chances are one of two things. They either like that structure or 
they've been super well trained, highly trained coming out of that franchise world, some of the best training that exists, and they don't, they don't need that anymore. So now they want to take those skills to the independent world. Do the franchises try to tie in with some of the big insurers to try to create a, a sales channel for their team? Kind of Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, these are, these TPAs are deals that these are negotiated in a glass room somewhere in a very high building. And uh, it, all of a sudden, it'll change. You, you can have a TPA say, oh, we're no longer carrying this insurance company. We're now working with this insurance company. And there will be tens of thousands of contractors affected by that decision. So wow. yes, they, everybody's fighting for the same pool of business. It's a matter of, uh, if you're in the TPA world, it's a matter of which carriers they're, they're playing the game with. You know, traditionally, franchising is attracted into marketplaces where margins tend to be juicier. Mm -hmm. You don't really see a franchise, you know, general contracting brand, mm -hmm. right? It's, and so do you think it's that, that higher margin mitigation work that kind of created the opportunity for over 20 different brands to try to create I do. this market? I do. The natural evolution for most of the people who got in the industry years ago, David, was uh, they were extractors, they were carpet cleaners, and they'd suck up the water for people in a, in a water damage. And then the next question was, who's going to help rip it out and cut out some sheetrock and get it ready to go? Well, after you refer enough of that workout, these guys said, listen, I'll do it. And they became contractors and got into the mitigation world. And then that would lead to the construction aspect. But a lot of guys out there started as extractors. And so when a homeowner faces a loss, I mean, one of the first things, I mean, I, this happened to me when I owned apartments, I had um, a, a drain that was going out to the city, which uh, a tree root got into and it got all clogged up and there was water backed up into a basement apartment. And so tenant called me and said, there's three inches of water in my living room. And so I went through this experience and you just wanted to stop and go away. You want yeah. somebody else to, to just handle it. And so you know, I never really stopped to realize I could go out and find my own contractor to do this work. It was kind of like I, I spoke with the person in my local insurance office and they said, okay, you're going to get a call from the, the insurance. You know, I called the broker. Yeah. The broker said someone from insurance is going to call you in a few minutes. They did. And then they said, yeah, we can have someone over there later today. And I said, great. And so this is an, I lived through this example yeah. of all these agreements that have been made to kind of divvy up the work. Yeah. And the good news from your seat and any insureds, uh, whether it be a residential property or commercial, the contractor that is sent out by uh, the insurance company is 99% of the time, that's a qualified company with qualified individuals who are sure. fully certified. And as you know, from experience, it's a lot of psychology when they knock on that front door because you're in a state of turmoil You've saved what you can from the basement. There could be sewage. It could be, you know, you had three inches of water. For some, it's a couple feet of sewage backed up. Yeah. And the person who knocks on that door has got to be able to navigate your emotions and the situation and get you to a point of understanding that they've got it handled. They're going to take care of it starting right now. They're going to have a crew out there. And uh, you're not in a state of mind to think, is there a company better? Should I go find my own? You know, I know a guy who knows a guy. Should I make some phone calls? They're there to fix it. And that's what you need to know. Hmm. Have, have you seen over the past decade, the, the, you know, the average net earnings of these business 
improving or declining? Great question. I'm going to say it's come down just a touch. The restoration companies overall have held up pretty well through the 2008 uh, recession mm-hmm. uh, into you know through nine and ten, and again they're holding up very well in this pandemic. And so, what two thousand eight nine taught us is that you can't be a sloppy operator. There was enough money being made uh, for decades previous that you could be a, a bad operator and still make a lot of money. Eight nine and ten taught contractors that they need to at least pay attention mm-hmm. to the details, and if they did, if they'd at least pay attention to some key metrics, they could still be pretty profitable. But I'd say overall, with some TPA work being introduced, those margins have come down a touch. But uh, if, if those have come down a touch, they've probably been tripled just with a headache factor. Because, you know, a decade ago, two decades ago, you could, you could show up with a white mask and uh, handle any kind of job at somebody's home or commercial property. And now, it's, with all the regulations and protections, um, it's totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I can, I can, yeah, I can understand that. I mean, yeah. hazardous material and all that kind of thing. That's right. Have to be certified in certain ways. Yeah. Um, and th- this has been a great, this has been a great conversation. Um, and so what do you think the future holds? I mean, we're seeing more and more extreme weather. Do you think that those profits are going to start to climb back in or do you just see the industry perhaps growing as far as well, the, the inter- number of operators? Yeah, great question. And that's also a multifaceted answer. There's a lot of people looking to get into this industry. Um, I get calls every week from private equity groups who view this as a safe space to park some money uh, Mm -hmm. because it's held up pretty well. Um, There is more extreme weather. There's no doubt about it. Um, Look at what the East Coast and Florida have been through and the Gulf Coast. It's um, that's pretty extreme. Uh, Last year, uh, was one of the mildest winters ever. So some of my upper Midwest and New England uh, clients, they're down because pipes just weren't freezing. That's one of the downsides. And so you are at the mercy of the weather a little bit. Um, thirdly, a consolidation has been huge. The, there's industry players. There's five to six of them that keep growing and they're hungry to grow. And so every year we put a few deals together with industry buyers and, and uh, they're a great option for, for contractors who want to stick around for a couple of years, maybe sell. They're not ready to retire, but they're ready to not own anymore yeah. because those industry buyers want those contractors to stick around for a couple of years. What kind of advice would you give to someone in the restoration space right now who's thinking that an exit in the next few years is, is something they want to consider? Um, first I'd say is make an educated decision. So many of these decisions get made emotionally. Mm -hmm. Um, some of my calls, David are on this Friday afternoon. They've had a tough week. They didn't get paid. Somebody quit. And they say, listen, I've got a restoration company. I've got 20 guys. We're doing, you know, two and a half million a year. I want to sell, get me out of here. Well, that's, I appreciate that as the first phone call, but let's make a decision based on something more than that. And so I take them through balance sheet adjustments. I take them through evaluation and analysis, which shows them what their company is worth and why. And then maybe talk to an estate planner or your wealth advisor, or your CPA. We've got to talk about taxes. Um, if their families work like mine, uh, it takes two yes votes. So let's talk to a spouse or a significant other that's got a say in this. And so you throw all that in a pot and mix it up. Let's make good decisions, not one out of emotion. Your, so your life's work deserves better than that. Yeah. So that's how I would start. In, in my general experience, it's a very small portion of business owners take the planned, measured, I'm yeah. an entrepreneur, this is an asset, I have to plan, 
know, sort of approach. Yeah. It's, it's mostly driven by pressing personal concerns or some kind of personal crisis or, you know, yeah. when I was a business broker, if I was going to call bakeries, I would wait for the hottest day of the summer and I would call bakeries to see who there you go. sell because yep. on that day they were all for sale. Yep. That's right. Well, and it's, it brings a chuckle to me and a big smile, but um, it's true. Very few people plan. There's a lot of restoration contractors who are wearing many, many hats and yeah. they can't see till Friday, let alone a year or two down the road. So part of what I do, and, and you're aware of this, is manage some expectations. Mm-hmm. There are people that plan and I can certainly manage that two or three or four years out. And there's people who don't plan. And I've had calls from people leaving the hospital with a heart attack. I've had calls from people who say, listen, my wife just hit me with a divorce and I'm going to sell. Well, that's okay too. It's, it's, you know, now that can come out of left field, but if you're ready to go and I always, especially if you're North of 58, 60 years old, my, my best advice is be ready. Even if you're not ready to sell, be ready with some answers. So mm-hmm. when that health event does happen or life throws you a curveball, you at least know the next steps down the road to make some measured and calculated steps. Yeah, it makes good sense. Um, JT, if anyone in the audience wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to reach you? Oh, thank you. Uh, best way to reach me confidentially, everything I do is confidential. Uh, my number is 503-577-5649. And an email is jt at exitstrategies and then the digits360.com. Yeah. And you, you're working with um, restoration companies all over North America, Canada. All over North US. America. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Well, thanks, JT. It was a great conversation. And a, and. I enjoy taking a little bit of a, a, a deeper look into certain industries, especially when um, I haven't had a lot of experience dealing with them in particular. Uh, great insight learning about how things are changing with the way the work is managed. Of course, you know, from the insurance company's point of view, they're trying to make money. And the way, one of the ways they do that is by trying to squeeze their costs a little you bit, bet. which is what these guys are doing. Yep. And it's ever evolving. So stay tuned. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. All right. Take care, David. Thank you once again. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.